Welcome to our, one of the most exciting evenings here at the Hirschhorn Museum. Welcome. My name is Milena Kalinowska and I'm Director of Public Programs. It is my pleasure to welcome you tonight for our annual James T. Dimitian Lecture. Tonight we have Simon Sharma here with us to discuss the beast in contemporary art. First, let me draw your attention to our programs. Magazine as well as the programs are available at the at the, on the table next to the door as you leave the auditorium. And one of the first programs that happens this week is most exciting and very unusual experimental walkthrough of F. Klein exhibition called Many Faces of F. Klein with Kerry Brower, Chief Curator, Deputy Director, and the Curator of the F. Klein exhibition. He will be accompanied by other experts to talk with him about different aspects of F. Klein, from sound to music to literature, and in the end we will end up with something very surprising, which I'm not going to tell you about. You have to come. Before I introduce Simon Sharma, I would like to acknowledge the friends of Jim and Barbara Dimitian Endowment Fund for making this annual lecture possible for the Hirschhorn. I also would like to thank Jim Dimitian, who has served at the Hirschhorn for 17 years, and his wife Barbara, who are both here in the auditorium tonight with us. I also would like to thank Glenn Furman, Hirschhorn trustee, for his support of this particular program, as well as Heather and Tony Podesta for their special support of tonight's event. We also would like to thank members for their continued support of our mission to put art, artists, and audiences together. Now let me turn to Simon Sharma. He was educated at Christ College, Cambridge, and taught at Cambridge, Oxford, and Harvard before coming to the Columbia University in 1993. He is currently University Professor of Art History and History at Columbia. He has written extensively on topics as diverse as 17th century Dutch art, environmental history, land art, and the 2008 presidential elections. He has won prestigious awards for his books, including W. H. Smith's Prize for Literature, the National Academy of Arts and Letters Award for Literature, and the National Book Critics Award for Nonfiction. He contributes and writes constantly for the Financial Times for their special column and contributes to The New Yorker. He has also produced several amazing documentary series for BBC and PBS, including A History of Britain, Power of Art, and the American Future, A History. I'd like to quote somebody here, and it's our director, Richard Koshalek, who said to us, Simon Sharma is an impressive because of his exploratory and experimental instincts. He's a scholar with a wide range of views, not only on the art world, but what exists beyond in the larger context. And that's why he's here. Simon Sharma. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Milena. That's so kind. Um, and thank you, Richard. And above all, thank you, Mr. Demetrian, uh, the Demetrians, for the kindness and the honor um, of inviting me to this lecture. Well, 
I bow to no one in my admiration for the work of Franz Ackerman and especially Julie Moretu, but I wonder if the work of art you see in front of you might not have been a more powerful choice to install in Goldman Sachs' new building. Uh, so, supposing they wanted to make a gesture of uh, penitential appropriateness, really, in their current, current difficulty. Um, of course, Damien Hirst's um, For the Love of God was often cited when it was first exhibited at White Cube in the summer of 2007 as the signal um, specimen uh, of, for, for evidence that really contemporary art was actually full of almost nothing, was, had reached a kind of terminus ad quem, was essentially remarkable for its vacuousness rather than anything else. Um, it was the object of absolutely extraordinary derision in the British press, um, who called it an exercise in porno bling, unconvincingly dressed up as art, uh, and characterizing now some of the other ruder remarks made about it, vulgarity confused with profundity. It was thought, really, it was presented as literally the most mindless gesture, a kind of not to groaningly pun at you, but well, I will groaningly pun at you, a sort of piece of skullduggery, uh, essentially a piece of fetish, a kind of fetish object that the culture could produce, uh, a piece of gimcrack generated by celebrity culture, and just as quickly destined for the trash heap. Now, I have to say, was not among the legions of the critics, nor am I now. For it seemed to me that Damien Hurst's skull had become an easy mark for the inattentive. It was almost invariably the case at the time, I think, that critics who attacked it as a glamour object masquerading art had actually not bothered to go and see it, glittering as it did. I don't know how many of you managed to see it, actually, um, in its uh, various installations. Um, it, was, it was actually shown, I think, at the Rijks Museum in Amsterdam for a while. Was it, did it come to Washington? Sort of, it didn't, okay, but certainly in Amsterdam, where it was very interestingly shown alongside um, Vanitas paintings, about which a, a lot more in a little minute. Um, but it was, it was interestingly installed in White Cube, sort of glittered in the darkness, and it had there a kind of merciless grimness, the kind that led Ron back immediately to Hearst's cunningly knowing title for the, for the work, for the love of God, an expression, when you come to think of it, that registers simultaneously incredulity and belief. And to the simple sense that as soon as the skull was read as a morally repellent embodiment of excess, it could likewise be read as a morally charged meditation on excess. Hence the Goldman Sachs suggestion, which probably will never happen. Of course, the accusation could and was leveled against for the love of God that it enabled Damien Hirst to have it both ways, to pose as the sententious critic of plutocratic excess while cashing his $100 million check, if that's indeed what it was, we don't know. And there's something about that kind of charge that really sticks. But supposing Hearst had exposed this to the world for the first time, not actually at the acme of... Uh, the bubble, but actually a year later when we were roiling in the turbulent waters of the, of the financial crash. Would the public response, or would it be, maybe it is the same now, or would the diamond skull have become an immediate fetish of collective self-denunciation? Would that dark glitter presided over the emptying corporate headquarters, say, 
you know, somewhere else, Lehman Brothers or something, would it then have seemed not empty-headed and mindless, but mindful, the latest and most spectacular instance in the long tradition of memento, of memento mori. Now, here we go. Yeah. Um, that uh, Western Christian culture has habitually used in visualized reflections on the transience of worldly goods and delights, the diadems of damnation. It can't be fortuitous that that tradition seems to have begun in the culture of the Netherlands. Simultaneously, not unlike modern cultures, greedy to represent the sparkling abundance of the material world and at pains, whether Catholic or Protestant pains, to deny the seduction of the vanities. So when in the middle of the 15th century, oh, we lost Rochia van der Weyde. Why did we do that? Yeah, oops. Okay, there we go. Uh, you know, um, this, the, these paintings are all about transience, but not that transient. Where the hell did it go a minute ago? Yeah. <laughs> Much cleverer than I meant to be. Um, when in the middle of the 15th century, Catherine of Brabant commissioned, that's probably Damien Hirst snuck in somewhere actually here, um, commissioned a memorial triptych. Um, uh, to, uh, to her husband, Jean Brac, from Rochia van der Veda, she made sure that the closed doors um, would show, let's hope, that this skull resting on a stone with trompe inscriptions written into the frame, which you can't see, the frame on the edge, punning on aver, reverse, to denote both avarice, aver, again, a pun, and aver, food for the worms. The right door, which you can see, with the cross, as a passage from the apocryphal book of Jesus Sirach, which amounts to the closest thing a 15th century Netherlandish culture could manage in a way of a Christian courtly attack on Burgundian bling. Oh, death, how bitter must be the thought of you to the one who, at peace with possessions, thinks he has nothing to worry about and is prosperous in everything. And yes, Wall Street did slide today, for those of you who are secretly looking at your iPhones to find out. Uh, once instituted, the iconographic tradition held fast, surviving the division of the world's most conspicuously wealthy civic culture into Catholic South and Protestant North. A century and a half after Von de Vader, in 1609, sorry about the horrible slide, but some of you will know this painting, I hope, from the Met in New York. Jacques de Chain II painted this particular image, which launched Dutch northern vanitas painting, where worldly riches were equated, as you can see, gigantically, with the transience of the bubble, with all the coins and medals and other emblems of vanity everywhere. Originally, of course, the tulip, you'll remember, we're in springtime now, was taken from Sufi tradition in Turkey, where tulips originally came from, courtesy of the Chevalier de Buzbek and so on, as an emblem of death, you see smoke, my days consume like smoke, biblical tradition, a whole tremendous omnium gatherum of rather gloomy, emblematic images of death. Now, I don't know if Damien Hirst actually had these specific images, this particular tradition in mind, when he thought up the diamond skull. Let's, yeah, I'll move on from that Van Gogh, rather wonderful, well, you all know that one, right? I mean, the, 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 the lingering Van Gogh, another enormously erudite scholar of the Western tradition, not, of course, the idiosavant he's usually caricatured as in, um, in popular versions of his biography. Now, I don't know if actually Damien Hirst 
was aware of the entirety of the Vanitas tradition of the West? Probably not. I mean, but he likes to give out, does Damien, the affect of unknowing. But it's sort of a reverse conceit. It sort of reminds me a bit of, you know, people used to go and say to John Lennon, what is, you know, Lucy in the sky with diamonds? And he'd say, I don't know, mate, you tell me. You know, sort of <laughs> the annoying thing that Bob Dylan does. I just write the stuff, you know. For, um, it's sort of like that with artists too, isn't it? Now, we know that, you know, he came, Damien Hirst and some of his contemporaries, like the actually um, uh, enormously erudite Mark Quinn, who doesn't have the kind of Damien Hirst problem with actually sort of trying to engage directly and in a complicated way with the, with the whole of the Western tradition of representation. But Hirst also came through Goldsmith through Michael Craig Martin's teaching, which was sort of saturated in issues of memory. All of his generation may have been influenced by minimalism a bit, but their instincts, as it were, in terms of the memory bank they draw on, have always been maximalist, greedily baroque, you might say. Hearst's problem, if he has one, is not that he, like the skull, is empty-headed, but chock-a-block, perhaps, over-congested with laconically disguised learned memory. Instead of suffering from the vacancy, which his critics habitually accused him, he might actually be a bit overstuck on the canon. So what I want to actually talk about, not in the context particularly of um, this sort of image actually, I'm about to go on to the beastly subject of the title of the lecture, is the adhesion of memory as a problem, but rather a wonderful problem to have in the way we understand postmodern art, and particularly contemporary art, especially in a culture I know best, my culture across the pond, in Britain, which has always had a huge problem, of course, didn't really ever have formal abstract uh, abstraction. Of course it did, Ben Nicholson and so on. It often had it imported by the likes of Naomi Garbo. But it was always in its sort of modernist endeavours, whether you, you know, look at what was happening. I mean, the fact that Lucian Freud and Francis Bacon kind of towered over that generation of the 60s into the 70s is not accidental. It was always much more a home with various kinds of figurative representation, which necessarily nailed it to the huge sense of memory, not just in British art, but in the whole canon of the West. And now, I think, right now, which is what I want to explore with you this afternoon, um, it seems to me, actually, that the relationship between the adhesion of memory to contemporary marks, to contemporary instincts, does actually situate contemporary art normatively. It does enable a kind of normative comment on the relationship with Richard, which, uh, um, which Richard was so kind, um, blush-makingly kind, to point out that I do like to go on about um, in the relationship between actually the way contemporary art is made and the sort of zeitgeist uh, on which it draws its inspiration. Yes, I know we're back to our old hellish friend, the hermeneutic dreaded circle. There's always a problem about whether or not the art constitutes the culture or the culture constitutes the art. I don't really care which way around it goes. It's a feedback loop I merrily embrace. And so I think do most of the interesting artists I want to talk about starting really now. Starting indeed with, back to Damien Hirst and a story for you about some of the, um, some of the unexpected turns, really, um, which interventions, some of the expected interventions that can happen when you're pursuing um, a line down this um, sort of memory lane. Here's this particular story. 
On May the 9th, 1994, a man described by the Guardian newspaper as a down-at-heel Oxford artist called Mark Bridger walked into the Serpentine Gallery in London and emptied a can full of black ink into Damien Hirst's Away from the Flock, the piece you've just seen, a lamb suspended in a formaldehyde tank. And the, rat, the result, as you can see, was completely decisive. Appearing before a bemused... London magistrate, Mark Bridger waxed eloquent and very lengthily about the state and fate of modern art and was at pains to, clear, to make it clear that his gesture was not, as he was accused, an act of vandalism, but an impassioned, as he put it, conceptual intervention. I was, I love this, I was in a carpe diem state of mind, he said. <laughs> Aren't we all? Aren't we all? <laughs> Tomorrow may not be available. So you're right. Bridger was not, in fact, without sympathisers. The London tabloid press, that had been hot with philippics against what had decided was Damien Hirst's charlatanism, and much worse, as far as the British public was concerned, his exploitation of defenceless, dumb beasts. The fact that sharks aside, Damien Hirst seemed to favour barnyard species, cows and sheep, the most beloved staffage of the English pastoral, for example, in this famous World War II British Railways poster by Frank Newbold, very beautiful one in colour, only made matters worse. Bridger, on the other hand, became equally horrified that his action might be misinterpreted as some sort of protest on behalf of animal rights. No, he wanted it to be understood. What he'd done was what he adorably called an addendum to Hearst's original idea for the piece. He was, um, he was surprised, actually, that um, Damien Hirst seemed to be upset, since, as he put it, they were both on the same creative wavelength. A lamb, the perennial symbol of unblemished innocence, suspended its prancing little hoofs, doomed never to gamble on the verdant sod, neither slaughtered nor alive. Well, yes, he, Bridger, certainly got that. A piece which was evidently all about life and death, the territory of what life is about, as Mark Bridger put it, but was absolutely what he appreciated. But he felt, he, Bridger, felt the lamb, quote, had already made its statement. So Bridger thought the time had come to give the installation another life altogether, hence the decision to ink it. Now, Mark Bridger explained to an increasingly testy justice of the peace, for the proceedings were into the second hour of his lecture on all this, if you think I'm going on lengthily, you should... The piece had become, as Mark Bridger inevitably said, class, you know what he's going to say, don't you? Yes, a black sheep. Just like, he said, Damien in the court of Philistine public opinion. But guess what? It's black sheepishness, the black sheepishness inside the ink, had to be inferred from making the entire piece invisible. Brilliant, he thought, did Mark Bridger, and he couldn't see why Damien Hirst didn't really see it the same way. Marcel Duchamp surely would have applauded, said Bridger. Maybe Marcel Duchamp would have done. Well, no, not according to the prosecuting lawyer hired by Damien. Mr. Chuck Nkudu Ize, a young Nigerian barrister not long out of the Middle Temple, nor was the magistrate much persuaded. Hearing it would cost a cool thousand pounds to restore away from the flock to its original state of suspended animation, the magistrate imposed a fine on the culprit, instantly discovered that in keeping with his bohemian self-advertising, he was a, quote, no fixed abode, no means of support, and waived the fine. But the most interesting thing at that point 
that Damien Hirst was saying when asked by the barrister. Damien Hirst said he was reported as saying that he was, quote, this will come as a shock to you, a conventional artist. Now, I think actually it's possible that the court recorder simply misheard Damien Hirst, and what he actually said was, I'm a conceptual artist. But, <laughs> but maybe he did say, I'm a conventional artist, because... Hearst did know that with his reputation as bad boy impresario, Freeze already established jokes about maggots and sharks, you know, the usual thing. Uh, actually saying that really he was a conventional artist was guaranteed to provoke howls of disbelief. But in one respect, even without the whole history of Dada surrealism, conceptual art since Duchamp coming to his aid, Hearst's self-description seems less facetiously disingenuous than you might suppose. The strongest pieces that he's made, in fact, all the pieces, I think, almost, almost, not the spot paintings, although, I don't know, sometimes I think even the spot paintings are responses to the history of art, the long history of art, but works like his version of St. Sebastian, I just juxtapose it with Palaiolo, of course. Um, above all, to the long tradition by which art was mobilized to sanctify the act of sacrificial slaughter uh, has been very important for him. Um, the issue of bleaching art of the sanguine stain of butchery. The strong pieces of Hearst, I think, are a kind of droll but questing puzzlement in the face of sacred ritual that makes sacrificial oblation the condition of redemption. This doesn't necessarily mark Damien Hirst out as irreligious. In fact, he is histrionically Baroque. I mean, as these recent blood-splashed cabinets representing the saints, martyrs, and apostles, there's grounds for suspecting that actually Hirst is really, not even secretly, extremely engaged with the long tradition of Christian sacrificial art. It's rather, I think, probably that Damien Hirst is curiously a-religious in the position of someone, say, like a Martian, um, landing somewhere between Palermo and Syracuse and who inquires before an elaborately blood-dripped wayside crucifixion, why would this be your hero? When taken to a mass nearby and told he'd be about to eat the body of that hero and drink his blood, the Martian, the kind of Deuterohearst, would have some difficulty disguising bewilderment. Dismissed too often, I think, as a knowing poseur, someone too clever by half, it seems to me, actually, that if there is a pose at all to Hearst's animal work, it's that of the way he cast himself, that of the provoking and provoked innocent. What works like this do is to take the truisms of sacred art, the assumptions within the working conventions of Christian iconography, the euphemisms that make images like the Saint Sebastian possible as either benediction or epiphany, and in a provokingly emperor's new clothes kind of way, wonder if there is not something a bit peculiar going on. Hearst's aim is to make problematically visible as if it were the sceptical object of conversionary spectacle, the largely unquestioned assumptions that enable us, believers and non-believers alike, to read the depiction of ritual butchery, predetermined by an omniscient creator, of course, as an act of interceding compassion, butchery as intercession. That's at the heart of at least post-Pauline Christian theology. 
So Damien Hirst, I think, does actually hit the memory bank in a lot of what he does, and certainly selects his targets carefully and often from the Academy. Literally, sometimes, the Royal Academy, and especially the shows which he does know a lot about, actually, of the mid-19th century, more or less contemporaneous with the Great Exhibition of 1851, which unveiled a new kind of sacred painting. Attacked by many critics as exhibits in a fright show, the scree you're looking, of course, at Holman Hunt's uh, famous scapegoat, the screaming colours squeezed for the first time from tubes rather than from bladders, the brutally hot light, of course, in the age of the Victorian parasol, the pre-Raphaelites Holman Hunt, Millet Rossetti, and their gifted outrider, Ford Mannix Brown, knew exactly what they were doing. Theirs, as Ruskin and Carlyle saw and admired, was indeed meant as Christian attack painting for a profanely materialist, visually meretricious age. They thought about art in its relationship to industrial capitalism pretty much in a way in which some artists might conceivably think about themselves now. Garishness for the pre-Raphaelites was integrity. Lack of garishness, varnish, the licked finish, the subdued palette, those were the lies required, in their view, by the lazy eye and the corrupt market. The pre-Raphaelites, as Ruskin often said, meant to openize, if necessary, my phrase now, by kind of optical shock surgery. And they did it compulsively with sheep. Perhaps they had in mind the mother of all sheep paintings, the one you all know, Hubert and Jan van Eyck's Adoration of the Sacred Lamb in the Cathedral, Cathedral Saint-Bavon in Ghent in Belgium. But although as a sinecure of fleecy fetishism, the triptych has never been surpassed, it would in other ways have been an odd archetype, I think, the Van Eyck triptych, um, for the pre-Raphaelite, since it was precisely with the Van Eyck brothers, uh, in a, the Van Eyck brothers, of course, ostensibly invent oil painting, certainly the kind of emulsions that produce a kind of hard, gem-like naturalism. It was through, through their innovation that oil painting oil easel painting becomes established not just in the Netherlands, but through Memling, uh, uh, Van der Weyde, Gerard David, and above all Hugo von der Hoos, um, shipped south through the Medici bankers into Italy. It's through them that you know, oil painting happens. Well, for the pre-Raphaelites, what happened in that particular change was altogether bad. It was the beginning of the kind of corrupt meretriciousness of the eye, as I say, that Ruskin went on about. It signaled the end of what the pre-Raphaelites fantasized, because they did fantasize about it, as a pre-lapsarian moment of painterly innocence before oil painting happened, when everything in their view had aspired to the condition of fresco, impulsive, uncalculated, monastic transparency of Giotto, Frangelico, and conceivably even Masaccio. So it was to that imagined childlike transaction between devotion and representation that the most intense of the pre-Raphaelites aspired. They were themselves affecting the air of the black sheep of the academy when their hearts and hands in their own minds were as pure as the driven snow. They know, not only knew what they were doing, but they knew when they were doing it. A moment in British history of acute self-consciousness about the standing of the nation in the world as an expressly 
Christian Empire. The Crystal Palace Exhibition of 1851, after all, was designed both in form and content as a huge brag about the supremacy of British industry, engineering, and manufacture. Only the ornate Pugenet's Gothic court seemed to harken back to the Christian ideals that Ruskin and Carlyle believed would redeem Britain from the callow materialism of the age of machinery. So, with this in mind, the pre-Raphaelites reimagined Britain, or rather England, it was really very essentially England rather than Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, as a pastoral idol, a pastoral idol, the sheepfold. Ford Maddox Brown, with a terrible chip on his shoulder about his working class wife, Emma, you see her, painted her as a modern Madonna in pretty bar lambs, holding their infant daughter in a paradisial sunlit meadow. The painter went to enormous lengths to give the painting the startling, wide-eyed intensity and immediacy that came not just from posing his wife and daughter hours on end, but actually ordering every day sheep and lamb to be brought, actual living sheep and lambs, to be brought in wagons every morning from Clapham Common to his garden in Stockwell, a rather kind of Damien Hurst thing to do, where much to Ford Maddox Brown's displeasure, some of the animals grazed on the prized flowers in his herbaceous border. To add insult to injury, when he showed painting, the painting at the Royal Academy, it was denounced even by critics who had adored his earlier painting of Jesus washing the feet of Peter. This, this they often, the word puerile was used. Later in the century, this may strike you as even more far-fetched than the original um, criticism, the stark plein air light of this painting of Pretty Bar Lambs was hailed by pretty cutting-edge critics like R.E.M. Stevenson, this is in the 1890s, as revolutionary, the beginning of modern painting, and so on. Whether or not he'd calculated it, um, the response to uh, another of the Brotherhoods, William Holman Hunt's twin sheet pieces were strikingly different from Ford Bannock's Brown, even though there were predictable complaints in the press about the unseemly rawness of the shepherd in this is painting called The Hireling Shepherd, you, some of you may know, and what one writer tellingly described as the unnatural glare of the grass, of the greensward, because in fact, again, pre-Raphaelites were trying to rip people out about their assumption about the camera-like as I say, meretriciousness of representation. Both of um, Holman Hunt's sheet paintings, that's the second one, um, called uh, Our English Coasts. Let me go back to Highland Shepherd. Um, both of them were meant to sound a patriotic, churchly, ecclesiastical alarm. Holman Hunt, the ex-office clerk from Cheapside, the shabby-suited savant, would relentlessly tell anyone who actually asked about the symbolism of these paintings that the hireling shepherd was a parable of the untoward results of dereliction of duty, unsubtly registered. You might just be able to see it by the uh, death's head moth. Can you see that in the, in the hand of the shepherd presented to his girlfriend, death's head? We get that back to skull matters, rendered again with sort of proto-Hurstian hyper-realism, while the flock, as you can see, strayed fatally into the alien corn to meet a grim end from sheep bloat. Any of you seen the movie of um, 
Um, any of you say, I have no, no vegetarians among you. Actually, probably you'll all be vegetarians by the time this lecture is finished. Um, any of you seen Far From the Madding Crowd? There was a fantastic scene in that version of the Hardy film where um, Alan Bates as um, Shepherd Oaks, Gabriel Oaks, has to deal with a massive case of sheep bloat. And he does it, I'm, I'm assured by farming friends of mine in Wales, by sort of driving an iron spike into the sheep's belly. It's an incredible thing. Terrible noise and apparently equally terrible. But, it's, but, but I digress. I, I, I almost never do that, do I? Um, so, in fact, the kind of the, the, the straying into the alien corn for Holman Hunt was a parable about what was going to happen to the Christian church, the Church of England, neglecting their own flock, the flock of their worshippers, by frittering away time in what Holman Hunt thought were uh, ridiculous and atavistic interconfessional disputes. Our English coasts, painted and shown in 1852, one year later, just shortly after the Great Exhibition, had the same sententious uh, sheep bell effect, you might say, or toxin, but with an immediately recognisable historical association, which you'll all know, I'm sure. Um, the cliffs near Hastings, Fairlight Cliffs, these are particularly called. Um, and 1851, you'll remember Louis Napoleon, the next Bonaparte, had seized power in France, and there was a great kind of sudden hysteria about whether there was going to be a kind of another Bonapartist invasion across the Channel, a second Norman conquest, the a Times leader writer said. I mean, it's, it seems absurdly paranoid and hysterical now, but Hunt, Holman Hunt, knew that uh, that the Duke of Wellington, um, who, even though he was very, very old and about to die, could just never take his mind off the possibility of the French all the time, or anybody called Napoleon for that matter. Um, Duke of Wellington died, but not before he sounded alarm bells about the possibility of this second invasion. So Holman Hunt, in his sort of patriotic, ecclesiastical innocence, was supplying what he thought of as a kind of memorial tribute to the Duke of Wellington, and also, again, a sense in which the destiny of the nation had to be a Christian destiny or else. Not many people, apparently, at the time, got the density of the symbolic detail. But maybe, just maybe, 140 years later, Damien Hirst did at least enough to want to empty out that tradition and replace it with an object or an image essentially of pathetic in terms of the literary sense of that word, alienation. Um, all high Victorian sheet paintings and even a 20th century uh, pastoral, like Henry Moore's drawings of sheep, very beautiful, actually, sort of spontaneously, almost semi-scribbly, lovely, lovely drawings of Henry Moore. But they all depend um, for their sentimental charge on a vision, of course, as you see from the top two images, of the collective flock. They came out of the notion of the nation as a collective worshipping shock, whether safely grazing or in peril, doing stupid things together, being looked after by a shepherd or not. By suspending a single lamb in a visual and material limbo, forever, in the title of her piece, away from the flock, he manages, I think, a neatly bleak image of permanent alienation. Remember the doubly iconic tradition of the sacred sacrificial lamb. Two, two crucial moments in, in the theological literature. First at the moment where 
John the Baptist greets Jesus as the Lamb of God, whose blood will wash away the sins of mankind. And then more adamantly, much more on the other John, um, John the Evangelist, book of Revelation, 26 references to um, the blood of the Lamb, where the unblemished Lamb emerges victorious over satanic evil. Both visions of the purgative nature of the blood of the Lamb uh, presuppose, of course, it's the blood of the Lamb, the necessity of sacrifice, indeed of sacrifices. Caravaggio's greatest masterpiece, in my view, all of those, not, if any of you haven't seen it in Malta, leave this room and book your tickets to Valletta. It is, has to be seen in situ in the Cathedral of St. John. So in Caravaggio's greatest work, most deeply felt work anyway, I think, the beheading of St. John in the cathedral, you'll remember, those of you who've just seen it maybe in the art historical literature, that he, um, that he poses the dead Baptist on a hoofed fleece of the lamb right there. And right beside it, of course, not seeing the crappy slide, is a rivulet of blood which forms the only time that we ever see Caravaggio's own signature. And he is, of course, at that moment a criminal, he's out on parole, and, and you know, the whole history of him being an assassin and a murderer and so on. So the sort of sense, actually, of what the blood of the lamb does, forming, puddling its own the signature of the artist, was sort of necessarily very profound. Now, by denying... Um, Either the sentimental reunion of you and Lamb, here's one lovely Henry Moore, here's another the same thing with real live lambs, but there is the, the you and the Lamb again in sculptural version, again from Henry Moore, or the Caravaggesque redemptive laving in the sacrificial blood. Damien Hirst strips his chemically embalmed woolly jumper of any kind of consolatory magic. Which is not to say that the creature you see on the left is meaningless. Its pathetic isolation seems more reminiscent of another Victorian icon I showed you already, Hunt's scapegoat, driven into the wilderness to sponge up the iniquities of the whole world. But there is nothing between us and the scapegoat but the basin of the mountains of Moab and the salt flats of the Dead Sea, where, as you know, weirdly, Holman Hunt actually did paint it. Hurst's lamb and his uh, bisected cattle, on the other hand, are encased within the kind of hermetically sealed off tank that the artist makes plain is an intrinsic element in the impact of his work, not just a container of convenience. This sealing off between us and the object of pathetic alienation is very important. The leaden framing is, in fact, around the glass is a footnote, we know, uh, to his hero Francis Bacon's use of similar framing. Hearst has recently been doing a, a lot of painted variations on not just The Screaming Pope, but other works of Bacon's, a little bit too derivative, really, although it's not so much derivative as obviously kind of comment on Bacon. And people say, oh, you know, Francis Bacon did that first, which does slightly, I'm not always going to spring to Damien Hirst's defense, but it does remind me of the wonderful remark made by Brahms when it was pointed out that the last movement, oh God, I think it's of his first symphony, it was just a weeny bit like Beethoven's, the last movement of Beethoven's ninth, and Brahms said rather brilliantly, any idiot can see that. You know, which was <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> it's a plagiarist dream, isn't it, really? It was a defense. Um, anyway, it's sort of, for Hearst, just for Bacon, 
the frame of art, the lead frame, becomes a kind of cognitive jail, a glassed-off barrier through which the imprisoned subject and the casual visitor-spectator establish a partial, only a partial, communication. Francis Bacon and Damien Hirst also, I think, share a healthy skepticism about the quasi-mystical pseudo-religious claims made for the compensatory immortality of art itself over the necessarily mortal subjects it wants to represent. Damien Hirst's lamb, of course, is not immortal any more than his shark. Um, the shark, you'll, some of you know, is constantly, notoriously in, in need of repair, sort of constantly in danger of decomposition. But the lamb and the shark are meant to be merely cryogenically perpetuated, not immortal, just suspended, cryogenically perpetuated, not all the same thing. The fascination with a neither world or an either world rather than a nether world with suspended termination does seem to be a preoccupation for the artist for whom the dialogue between presence and absence, memory and oblivion, embodiment and disembodiment, history and contemporaneity is the meaning of being British. Think of Rachel Whiteread's, excuse me, think of Rachel Whiteread's work, Ghost and House and so on, same sort of obsession. Here I'm going to show you again um, the work of, briefly, of someone I've mentioned, Mark Quinn, in a funerary garden um, he made for the Fondazione Prada in Milan in 2000, when he turned his morbid gaze on uh, the paradoxes implied in the oxymoronic formulation, still life, rendered even more problematic in French, of course, as nature morte, and on another of those Britishly self-defining occupations, apart from feeling soppy about sheep, namely, in Mark Quinn's case, flower gardening. Quinn thought about the way cut flowers, conventionally used to mark a passing, a pagan ritual originally taken from the ancient Near Eastern world in Egypt and Phoenicia. Um, he's thought about the way those cut flowers must necessarily decay and, and, and wither as soon as the funeral rites are over. So rather in a manner of the suspended termination of, her, of Hearst's frozen gambling lamb, Quinn has accommodated the contradictory yearning both for the organic process of vegetable decay and re-fertilization to echo the process by which the earth receiving the dead will itself body forth the vegetation of another spring. The kind of a sort of resurrection and the equally strong need to fix memory by freezing bouquets in a silicon dip which preserved them. That's what Quinn did. He sort of dipped the flowers in this extraordinary silicon as if they are embalmed in unnatural brilliance forever at the supersaturated height of their brilliant blooming. So again, a sense in which our expectations about flowers decomposing along with the funeral rites and, as I say, bodying forth in a natural way um, can actually be made more problematic and, and, and uh, more provoking by actually having a bloom that will never, ever fade whatsoever. So why, you might be asking, all this obsession with mortality, decay, petrification, resurrections denied or granted? Maybe the obsession is part of what Damien Hirst meant when he owned up to being, as he called it, a conventional artist. It's true that there's seldom been a generation of artists when issues of decay, arts 
art's struggle to sort of fix living things beyond natural decay has not been the great challenge of challenges. What else, after all, does the grieving Madonna of Michelangelo St. Peter's Pietà do? Um, this is a grieving matron um, who ought to have the face of an elderly grieving matron, but like Mark Quinn's permanently frozen tulips, has instead the aspect of unearthly, perpetually beauteous, of course, virginal youth. But while the beastliness of much contemporary art, when it's not just tactically sensational, does represent a serious engagement with this particular purpose of art, the issue of art struggle with decay and mortality, it also, I would like to think, possibly charitably, possibly you may have a different view, um, it also represents some kind of engagement um, with a time of unrelenting atrocity. Now you'll say, well, what age you know, has not been similarly blood-bolted, and I've no particularly smart-ass comeback for that. That's absolutely true, except to say that in our own time, the collapse of the delusion of humanitarian progress announced, for example, in the Atlantic Charter over half a century ago, has been peculiarly abysmal, partly because of the originally high-minded promise of, of, the, of the original principles. It does seem to me to be a hallmark of the bravest, although not necessarily the most successful contemporary art, again one thinks of Francis Bacon a bit, um, that unlike the austere narcissism of the high abstract expressionists or the jokey narcissism, of, um, excuse me, the, sort of the, uh, uh, or the jokey narcissism of pop art, um, this sort of art that I'm trying to engage with today does make some attempt to register the ubiquitousness of slaughter and cruelty. And it does so by bringing us back to the dismemberment of the classical tradition and the heroic nude forms that were its epitome, while doing its best to avoid banal documentary literalism. The point of engaged art now, isn't it, must surely be to offer something other than the morally soporific effect induced by news coverage of atrocity. That seems to me the example and a very high standard that the painter like Anselm Kiefer has set himself recently, another artist much concerned with the possibility of redemptive vitalism budding from the ash and the cinders. It seems to me precisely because of the exhaustion or the terrifying vulgarization of images of slaughter that are the special domain of the media that the strongest, most intelligent, bravest artist, here's Jenny Savile, have been challenged to find an alternative form in which to register disgust, horror, anger and pity, not just at the carnage of the world, but at what they take to be traditional art's complicity in its consolatory euphemism. Above all, traditional art's complicity in the aesthetic bleaching of the sacrificial carcass. Now, neither Damien Hirst nor Jenny Savile, any more than Francis Bacon, whose speciality you'll, I'm sure, agree with me, that often was, and who repeatedly advertised his interest in bodies as, quote, this is Bacon's own word, pure meat, um, would, I hope, want to claim any rights of originality in that respect, except that they had a very, of course, modern 
uh, take on it, uh, above all, you know, the incredibly professorial Francis Bacon was, whatever we might guess about Damien Hirst, no question that Bacon was, uh, knew about the tradition, the genealogy of the tradition with which he engaged, about the unease and what he wanted to add to it was, which hadn't occurred in the tradition, at least not explicitly, Bacon wishes to add an unease to the relationship between carnal appetite butchery, literally physical butchery, as in preparing meat, sacrifice and redemption. It was from the Flemish painters, Peter Eltz and Joachim Berkela, with their ambiguously framed insets of Christ in the house of Martha and Mary, this one, for example, that uh, Agostino Caracci described, derived his frank display of hanging meat. I hope you saw the, 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 the joint in the in the, um, the outside back there. The move back from the kitchen to the butcher's shop, this is set in a butcher's shop, nudges ostensibly innocent genre pieces towards an uneasy confrontation with the meaning, especially in an intensely Baroque Catholic, perfervid Catholic world, intensely uneasy, I think, confrontation with the meaning of slaughter. It was the Reformation attack on conventional sacred painting that triggered a kind of displacement by which Protestant artists like Rembrandt developed indirect devotional imagery, one in which the sacred penetrated daily quotidian life. And no culture, it seems to me, um, developed the art of allusion more meatily. So while Rembrandt's slaughtered ox and a variant on it, wonderful one in the Museum of Fine Art in Boston, you may know by David Tenius, belongs ostensibly to this butcher shop genre uh, of, uh, of Berkeley, Elson, and Karachi, there's little doubt that Rembrandt's piece was meant to trigger meditations on the passion of Christ, a subject which, of course, 20 years before had been Rembrandt's own most important and controversial commission. Ten years before The Slaughtered Ox, Rembrandt had already broken the rules of a kindred genre, the game piece, by painting a brace of partridges. This is in the Rijksmuseum. You have to, actually, it's probably not on display while the Rijksmuseum is being redecorated. And even in the old Rijksmuseum, you really had to hunt for this, this painting, extraordinary as it is. Very, very thinly painted, deliberately thinly painted, like a kind of trickle, almost a secretion of paint, rather like a leak of blood. The partridges are here not tastefully arrayed as they are in the big jumbo game pieces, you'll know. I love, actually, if you want to read sort of witheringly British remarks about Dutch game pieces, go, as of course you will, to uh, jo <laughs> Sir Joshua Reynolds' travels in the Netherlands, where he's trying to note down, make, make inspiring notes for his students back in the Royal Academy um, about everything he sees, but then he just gives up at one point, and he says in this fabul fabulously laconic way, another dead swan by Veninx, <laughs> and he sort of... Do you feel for him a bit? This, however, on the other hand, was something extraordinary. Because the partridges are not there in a Venix way, as if they'd been magicked from the sky rather than shot. But as you see, dripping, remind you of the Caravaggio, right? Dripping a thin leak of blood onto a stone ledge. Now, of course, at the most ruminative point in his career, um, in the, uh, so, excuse me, uh, in a, a, bit, a bit further on, let's go back to you there. Um, oh, sorry. I think I've got it. Oops. Yes, I'll, I'll we'll skip the anatomy lessons from there. But it, the important thing is in the 1650s that having actually explored... Oh, help. I'm going to go back. Let's go back there. Um, the, the thing that makes it extraordinary is that really, in some sense, 
uh, Rembrandt wants to do an implant. He's violating all the rules of decorum, actually showing you that these are not simply ornamental objects, but they have been shot, they're in the process of dying, they're leaking what blood is left from them. Later, at the point where his own fortunes are going down the drain in the mid-1650s, just before the roof falls in on his fortunes, he paints on the left an image which manages the impossible, something that had been prepared by the Partridge paintings. What's the impossible thing? Well, to suggest in the uncompromising, and the slide isn't very good, I'm sorry about that, um, uncompromising naturalism of its loving description of sinew, muscle, bone, fat, and viscera, a living rather than a dead animal. It is so extraordinary, kind of um, surgically, clinically open. The sort of description is gobs of fat hanging down over the bones. Um, you get, it, it's impossible not to feel there's a living thing, even though it's self-evidently dead and open and gutted. Rembrandt, of course, um, was, among other things, uh, a, the famously skilled master of anatomies. Perhaps we will go back there. Um, painting, of course, the anatomy of Dr. Damon in the 1650s, borrowed directly from Mantegna's Dead Christ. Rembrandt, you'll know, collected Mantegna drawings. But Rembrandt makes no bones at all, as it were, about the transmigrations between the corporeal and the spiritual. Maybe Rembrandt was the first, I, I welcome suggestions um, correcting me, but he seems to me to have been the first to suggest a direct analogy between the palette knife and the butcher's knife, the painter's knife and the butcher's knife. Certainly, that thought seems to have struck Chaim Soutin when he first set eyes, thunderstruck, on Rembrandt's slaughtered ox in the Louvre. The girl with the dead partridges that you saw a minute ago had already actually set Soutine off on a series of slaughtered birds that some of you may know. It's a terrific Soutine show at the Jewish Museum a few years ago that had a whole row of those amazing partridge and pheasant birds. It was paradoxically the unnerving vitalism of Rembrandt's brush and knife style in the slaughtered ox which triggered a feverish homage on Soutine's part. Soutine, whose own gastrointestinal system, about which he wrote a lot, was an encyclopedia of disorder. Was he, he described himself often as a martyr to digestion. Went well beyond Ford Maddox's Brownian lengths to consummate a modern reworking of the relationship between slaughter and expiatory oblation. Supplied by a local Paris slaughterhouse with an enormous beef carcass for the sum, not inconsiderable sum, of 3,500 francs, this sort of carcass hung on a hook in his studio apartment at the Rue Saint-Gothard and smelled so badly it attracted visitation, first from just great clouds of Houseflies and blue bottles, another Damien Hurst favourite, of course, and then, of course, from the Paris inspectors of health and hygiene. This being Paris, however, rather than marching Soutine to the lockup, the kindly health inspectors gave him advice and supplies. They brought along their own formaldehyde with them. Great, now. Grateful though he was for the fixatives, Soutine was disappointed to discover that when he applied the formaldehyde to the carcass, it dried it out so that its lurid rawness, the heart of the appeal to the last of the great figurative expressionists, the, the blood faded to an unsatisfactory brown. There was a solution for this, however, and that was for his girlfriend to make daily visits to the slaughterhouse to fetch Soutine buckets of blood with which every morning he laved the carcass. 
It was this repeated sanguine irrigation that brought home to Suti, and as he said, the Judaic origins of the sacrificial tradition by which sin was projected onto the offering in the tradition of the scapegoat, cleansing the iniquitous as they let the blood. It's horrible, but I suppose it's kosher, actually, if you think about any of you kosher and meat, you know all about it if you do. There is a sense in which Soutine's painterly extravagance connives at that which he purports to dismantle, the classical tradition of agonized heroic sacrifice, the Laocoon. If anything, the furious drama, almost Jacobean drama, of Soutine's brush and knife participates in a vitalism of slaughter, rather like Picasso's compulsive repetitions of gored horses and matadors in the bullring. Predictable efforts have been made to represent Soutine as a prophet of the Holocaust, but I think that's to read the story backwards. And besides, would an abattoir be the most powerful means to register the bestiality of the zeitgeist? Which is where, again, I think, maybe, Damien Hurst's butcher shops and anatomical cabinets might come in. They, after all, are directly derived, no doubt about this, from the Kunstkammers of the High Renaissance and 17th century, which in Rembrandt, you'll know, has uh, an enormous Kunst and Wunder cabinet, which include as an obligatory item specimens of preserved exotica, trapped in preservative, and in extreme cases, jars of preserved fetuses, carefully dissected animals, both born and unborn. Rembrandt had loads of those. Damien Hirst, his encyclopedism, carefully disguised between this affect and nonchalance, knows a lot about that. And his longitudinal bisections and their clinical precision are meant with the slice of the saw to do away not only with the legacy of the classical argon, but the newer and more secular tradition, a sort of slightly later and secular tradition, especially strong in Dutch and English art, by which prized farm animals were turned into expressly patriotic sustenance. So Hurst is, is engaging with the kind of um, sort of the sort of tub thumping tradition by which you use animals, living vital animals that you nonetheless know are going to be slaughtered as an emblem of the sort of uh, beefiness, literally, of bloody-minded British liberty. This is, of course, not British, but, uh, but Paulus Potter. But those of you learned in Dutch art will know that the great uh, emblem in, uh, in emblem books and indeed in medals in 17th century Dutch history was the, the Hollandse Koe, the, the Dutch cow. In British tradition, uh, here's the famous... Um, print after Hogarth's little painting in Tate Britain called The Roast Beef of Old England. The deliberate association, this was actually, um, this was, uh, uh, this was actually a piece of autobiography uh, that you can see. There's Hogarth. Hogarth was sketching the Gate of Calais. It was originally called the Calais Gate when he was arrested as a spy, actually, in 1748. And this was partly his revenge, and it turned into a popular song. But the basic thing here going on is that uh, this enormous side of beef is being coveted droomingly by the fat French friar. And here are the kind of miserable, the, the losers in the great British Hanoverian tradition, uh, the pathetic, defeated Jacobites, um, the Irish refugee ex-soldier, all desperately starving and famished, while the British, of course, sustained by beefy freedom, uh, are in a position to produce this sort of enviable joint. 
Um, so it seems to me, you know, that part of the tradition of what those earlier paintings with Richthurst is perhaps engaging was to make naturalistic illusions of ungulate heft. By retaining two-dimensionality while exposing in a very, very unsparing way, these are two-dimensional images because they're, they're slices of meat, slices of animal, um, the innards of the deception. Hearst comes at the end of this tradition, appropriate, which had appropriated bullish Jovian potency for national self-promotion. So Hearst is deliberately making his cattle, sliced up cattle, encased in a Baconian way, not to pun, aesthetically and gastronomically unappetizing. Whatever the fate of these poor cows, it's certainly not going to be, as it would be in the Hogarthian sense, the county fair. And it's certainly not going to sit beside any kind of Yorkshire pudding, that's for sure. So while much beastliness of contemporary art is averse to sententiousness, it doesn't you know, it's, it's averse to the kind of sententiousness which is trying to really get rid of. It doesn't make it necessarily mere exercises in Jocko's cool. Pieces like Bruce Nauman's Hanging Carousel obviously engage with the spectacle of industrially processed butchery. I don't discount the possibility that some of these efforts, don't think it's the case with Nauman, are, might occasionally get corrupted by disingenuous sensationalism. But when these images and installations do succeed in bringing home to us the machinery of butchery, and if you've seen this sort of swinging, screaming thing, there's one uh, that was a Bruce Nauman show, I think, at MoMA, wasn't it, some years ago, which had this. They do, I think, when they work at this level of painful butcher-like intensity, um, aim higher than contributing simply another pedestrian piety about the brutishness of our times. The real target, as I said a bit earlier on, is rather the means by which art has been an accomplice in the aesthetics of power. Take these three images. We're switching from sheep to cows to horses. Don't worry, I'm not going to go on until we get to kind of gerbils and hamsters, actually. Um, these are three evidently sincere attempts to say something about the fate of the perennial epitome of the reciprocal partnership between man and beast, the equestrian statue. The one you see on the top left is the Animal War Memorial at Brookgate on Park Lane in London, and it's by David Backhouse, a fellow of the Royal Society of Sculptors. And it's designed as a lament for the cruelties inflicted on animals, especially cavalry horses and beasts of burdens like mules on and off the battlefields of the 19th and, and indeed early 20th century. The piece is undoubtedly uh, heartfelt compromised less by its sentimental literalism than, I think, unfortunate conceptual confusion. Because in his efforts to conjure up simultaneously the spirit of the antique relief and the animalier sculpture of the 19th century wall, um, David Backhouse has uh, sort of mixed genres in a way that converge unhappily almost, I think, on self-parody. These sort of three-dimensional mules seem to, I always think, as you know, you go down Park Lane, they always seem to be contemplating their own likeness on the wall, rather like, you know, uh, families of veterans coming to look at Myerlin's memorial on the mall here. Much better than, I think, David Backhouse's confused and confusing literalism is this piece by the Belgian artist, contemporary artist Belinda de Braikere, who I really like a lot, actually, um, her take on equine pedigree. Of course, the Braikera version here 
is a, what she's getting at is the cultish obsession with bloodlines and breeding that goes back through the production of cavalry and racehorses. Instead of, if you think about what makes a horse valuable, it is pedigree, it's bloodlines. Instead of a specimen perfected by so many calculated generations of sire and dam, Belinda de Brecker has stitched together literally a horse of many parts, three different bits of horse going on here, that undergoes vertebral collapse from the disaster of its misconstruction. Yes, it's a joke, though a black joke, thrown back at all those projections on the animal kingdom of our own invincibility. A myth concocted by art to give raw power the dressing of physical grace. The complementary, here's Velasquez of Philip III, the complementary match between horse and rider, both godlike and their muscular authority, goes back to the beginnings of Western art, to the Parthenon, of course, to Pliny's account of the painting of Alexander Bucephalus by Apelles of Kos, and, of course, to the Aurelian statue, statue of Marcus Aurelius, for which Michelangelo designs the stage set of the astonishing Campidolia. Courtier painters like Titian, Van Dyck, Rubens, and here Velasquez all followed in delivering images of fantastic sovereignty, the prince's hand nonchalantly reigning as great horse, even or especially in the perilous stance of the Levard. Jonathan Brown at Princeton's written brilliantly about this. When aristocratic political cultures, not not uh, absolutist cultures, when aristocratic cultures like Hanoverian England disperse the sovereign power, the mana of equestrian authority was likewise redistributed to their aristocratic obsessions with noble pedigree. The war horse gives way to the racehorse, the courtier artist to the sporting painter. There were lots of sporting painters and horse artists at this moment, it's not accidental. James Seymour, sorry, Gilpin, um, but of course only George Stubbs, the artist here, transcended the genre by delivering pictures in which horses and men are virtual peers. George Stubbs changes the nature of the genre from equestrian portraits to horse portraiture in which riders, jockeys and owners play actually second fiddle to the celebrities of the track, the horses themselves. The secret of Stubbs' success in persuading us he's representing horse persona, if that's not an oxymoron, lay in his mastery of equine body language, the flare of a nostril, the widening of an eye, the accurate fixing of state of gait and stance. Stubbs was the first to realize that hitherto equine representation had merely been a matter of conforming to templates supplied by the Renaissance, of great Renaissance images, of course, but that exacting first-hand anatomical study from Maine to Fetlock, an accumulation of empirical information, was the condition of individualizing his subjects, of making not just horse portraits, but something like equine genre paintings. Which is not to say that Stubbs is a sort of horse sentimentalist, just the opposite, or that he was content to make his work from observation or uh, observation of antique statuary. In fact, actually, it's just the opposite. It was only by being a true anatomist, he felt, which was, which was to say using death to inform the trick of life, like Rembrandt's ox, like Rembrandt's partridges, he could achieve at this extraordinary masterpiece, these are two plates, from his anatomical atlas of the horse, the work that made George Stubbs' name and fortune. It was a huge gamble that this actually came off for him, and an applied attack on the academy, again in the person of 
poor Joshua Reynolds what they meant by anatomical drawings. What they meant by anatomical drawing is, of course, classically derived from the human nude. So while fellow artists he had known during his brief stay in Rome stayed to draw the antiquities or in London observed the rigors of life classes or studied from models of the écorché, the flayed man, George Stubbs closeted himself away with his mistress in an obscure Lincolnshire village. Subjects were brought to his attic, live horses, where he would hang them in a complicated harness contraption from the ceiling and then methodically, slowly, bleed them to death, injecting the veins and arteries with tallow to preserve their external appearance through the skin. Eventually, Stubbs would proceed to a flaying and thence to a careful systematic dissection. Horrible Gothic romance, but it was only from this shocking, protracted intimacy in which love and death seemed to me to be bloodily commingled that Stubbs could liberate the horse from its confinement in the convention of equestrian studies of the Velasquistician kind and reconstruct the pure animal as though never saddled, creating, uh, in effect, what have been called equestrian nudes, like Whistlejacket, the most famous, or fantasies of entire families of mares and foals gathered in some imaginary gate, like a school of uniums. I think Stubbs could hardly have uh, avoided Swift's Gulliver's Travels. That moment caught on the cusp between anatomical science and romance that Stubbs, but only Stubbs, caught um, before the uh, causes kind of vision of literally unbridled energy became trapped in a whole set of artistic productions, some of which were very good. Uh, Jericho's Doomed Riders to Remington's uh, Cult of the Cowboy. We're not, we, we are, I hope, fairly far away from, this is the holy relic of stuffed trigger, Roy Rogers fans out there, as you can see, I think, in, I think in Texas. But the nail in the coffin of equestrian kitsch, of equestrian kitsch, was supplied finally by Maurizio Catalan, perhaps predictably. It seems improbable that Catalan could have been unaware of the famous story of George Stubbs's harness contraption when he designed his own. Um, and certainly other contemporary horse artists, it is a big British thing, Catalan, not British, but very much part of that circle. Artists, of course, like Mark Wallinger, have been candid about their debt to George Stubbs, who remains in his lugubrious vitality a, a real lodestar for the postmoderns. But what Catalan has done here, of course, is to convert harness, the kind of harness that's designed expressly to transport racehorses safely from stall to stable with minimum risk to their life and limb. So he's taken that notion of the, the saving, the careful, the precarious harness to precisely become the opposite, an object, an exhibit of their lifelessness. As an end round, uh, as an end run around the long equestrian tradition that runs from Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari and David's Napoleon crossing the Alps on the right, Catalan's, I suppose, is an amusing, possibly ultimately banal deconstruction, but it does certainly make an economical obituary for that kind of equestrian tradition in a way in which, again, I'm suggesting Damien Hirst is trying to do for other kind of animal imagery. Taxidermy, you know, to spin something close to an obsession with contemporary, young contemporary artists, young-ish contemporary artists in Britain, the chemistry of the morgue. And I, I will say I've been defending what I think they're up to in terms of the high seriousness of their connection with all kinds of traditions. But I will now 
switch to a kind of criticism because I probably share what you know you must all be saying at this late hour. We get it, we get it. I mean, I often want to howl at in the presence of some postmodern confections. I get this, now show me something you've really pondered, not just a high school truism about the world drowning in the bloody slops of the abattoir. That, my God, we especially get. Give us something more. And back, I think, come some of those artists say, no, that's not it. The reason we dip carcasses into formaldehyde, why we or our people we hire are so busy stuffing and stitching is because we are making a point. I've said this now two or three times, probably tediously for you, about art itself, the unself-consciousness by which all representation is all representation. The defeat of decay is ultimately, the young ones say, a form of gussied-up taxidermy, the mechanical fixing of fugitive moments. That, they're saying, is what art does. What we now are pricking with our needles and our thread, pouring with our chemicals is art's pretension to defeat time, to transform mortality into vitality. Above all, what annoys us, provokes us, is art's attempt to avert the gaze from putrefaction. What is art? Why? It says it's the victory over decay. But guess what? The contemporary artist protests it can't be done. The end result of all that effort is merely a subspecies of deadness, they argue. So the contrary gesture they want to make is to foreground precisely the repugnant process which the fake aesthetic of the perfect death, the immaculate mortality, belies. Instead of that immaculate immortality, Damien Hirst's thousand years made, you know, the calf's head with the blowflies around it, made decay, or rather the relentless cycle of death and regeneration, the maggot and the blowfly born from the rotting head of the calf, the point of it all. But recreation is maybe, or the literal working out of that problematic is all, and sometimes you do just sigh and shrug your shoulders and hope for something with ultimately more staying power. Above all, I think my occasional wistfulness, which I'm registering um, at the end of these remarks, you'll be happy to hear, um, about the gap between the conceptual high-mindedness of those grandiose titles, A Thousand Years, The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living, that's the title of the chart painting, and the yield of true elimination comes from a sense of the redundancy of some of the stuff they do. All this feverishly Tarantinesque work to see off the traditional death aesthetic by substituting what in the end is an equally artificial new death aesthetic. The varnish of the licked finished passion piece replaced by the vat of stinky chemicals. There's a lot of postmodern irony going on here, unintended, not least by the fact that, of course, this famous shark is constantly, which was supposed to be dedicated to eternally suspended animation, does succumb to disintegration every few years in ways that Damien Hirst did not at all intended. And any of you out there who, who uh, all of you out there, goodness, how can I say that? All of you out there, deeply versed in the canon, will know, of course, that so far from artists like Goya, and one could say Picasso too, but Goya is, of course, actually the prime case, having been unaware of the relationship between modeling and slaughter, between the heroic figure and the dismemberments of history, of the thin membrane between the aesthetic of the death argon and the reality of pain, torture, and carnage. 
Goya, above all, went out of his way to put all that down on paper and canvas. What are we, asks Goya over and over again. What can art do but surrender to the appalling fact that we are butchers and we are the chopped meat? And it's a feature of the most thoughtful artists, Evgeny Rembrandt, the greatest practitioners of nature mort, fully conscious of the oxymoronic quality of what nature mort is, to indicate their awareness of the self-defeating quality of painterly immortality. They knew this before our young modernists, Hearst and Jenny Savile and so on, could point it out. The Dutch, who perhaps because they're Calvinist preachers, kept on telling them, seemed to me to have been obsessively aware of this peculiar double-take, not of art's victory over decay and putrefaction and all the rest of it, but its inability, really, ultimately, to make that fix. So that art, Dutch art, this kind of Dutch art, um, specialises in the rendering of things, in all their shocking vitality, together with indicators of their impermanence. Hence, the impermanence of the art which ostensibly perpetuates them. That's why we have all those butterflies, ephemera, creatures who live literally for the day, just one day. The butterflies are there not just as an emblem of the transience of our own lives, but actually of the transience of the life of art too, when faced with the more sublime eternal verities of issues of, of sin, predestination and eternity. So I suppose that's why I'm quite happy to find Damien Hirst um, turning, as he often does, lepidopterist, and to call one of his sweetest confections, this one, um, I suppose with an ironic grin, as he assumes from time to time, rapture. Um, but if his mordantly sobering take on bliss is Hirst, that it always presupposes in the Dutch spirit its own swift disappearance. There have been moments, I think, when the self-cancelling nature of art's beauty is offset by a surprising gesture of faith in art's power of resurrection, even in the work of Damien Hirst. So, if I had been the curator of the White Cube in 2007, even without intimations of the mortality of the stock market and Lehman Brothers, I would have had the visitors make their way out of the darkness in which the apparition of the diamond-encrusted skull appears, the ultimate epitaph of the Vanitas tradition, um, and confront in a space of blinding, art, uh, blinding light its absolute opposite. Damien Hirst's very beautiful dove trapped, and of course Hirst knows the entire holy dove, holy ghost tradition, trapped in a moment of perpetual alighting. And something amazing that I don't think Damien actually intended, but it happened, I'm sure he was very happy it did. Um, the chemical in which it was suspended, which is kind of refined formaldehyde, I think, actually formed these tiny little bejeweled beads that attached themselves to the dove's feathers, and they bubbled with minute specks of reflected light. I don't know if any of you saw it. In a way, it was even more remarkable piece than the skull. That surely was the, the dove seen like that would have been a wonderfully sort of dialectically apposite thing, a resurrectionary antidote to the grimacing rictus of the skull. And if what he's after 
Damien Hirst occasionally, what he's sort of trying to nail is the consolation of perpetual motion. It's a surprise that he's never really thought, and I hope he doesn't actually, because he probably will do this now, he's never thought of working with hummingbirds. But maybe he thinks that um, hummingbirds are old hat. Or to be specific, a um, 150-year-old hat pin, uh, which I saw in a Manhattan apartment belonging to an actor friend of mine a few years ago. It turns out, wouldn't you know, that at the height of Victorian fashion, a milliner decided what a cool thing it would be to make a hat pin of 21 heads of hummingbirds. And whatever else you think of that is at least, sorry about this, not ho-hum. Thank you very much.